Amen, amen. Hey, this morning we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. A little bit of work to do. We're in chapter 4, verses 6 through 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 through 13. We're going to wrap up this series next week with 14 through the end of the chapter. And so today we're going to kind of set that pace and try and see as Paul begins to, to bring this whole discussion in these first four chapters of Christian wisdom as he's trying to tie, tie these up and apply them to our lives. And so there's a number of takeaways that we're going to be able to have. And you're going to begin to see, even here in verse 6, that he's kind of moving in summation to begin to apply these things and asking us to recall all those things that went before. So if you took notes uh, in weeks prior, you're going to need to start digging those out of the trash can so that you can start seeing uh, all the things that Paul's getting ready to bring to bear on on the church there in Corinth and also on us. Hey, let me read 6 through 13 for us, and then we will walk through it. Starting in verse 6, he says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, and that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? And, and what do you have that you did not receive? And if you, then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us you have become kings. And, and would that you did reign so that we might share in the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us as apostles, as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. So Paul moves through, and he's going to address a couple of things, and he's going to do it in just really succinct fashion, but he's going to do so incredibly forcefully. But as we look at this passage, and we, and we seek to apply it to our lives, and ask the question of what thing, God, would you have me do, we have to understand something, that when we appropriately apply the wisdom of God, it creates humility in me, unity in us, and it upholds the power of the gospel. So when we appropriately apply the wisdom of God, it's creating humility in me, unity in us, and it's upholding the strength of the power of the gospel. So conversely, if we're going to look at this and say, well, what happens if we don't do this? How does this work? We say that, that if you're not appropriately applying the wisdom of God, then it's going to do a couple of things. It's going to create pride in me. It's going to make me tend to think better of myself than I should. It's going to create disunity in us because we're all in it for ourselves, and it's going to work to destroy the gospel because at the very heart of it is a fantastic misunderstanding of what the wisdom of God, in fact, is. So look at how Paul begins this. Paul begins and he says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. So what are these things? Well, these things likely are all the things that have preceded to this point in the letter. But if we're going to kind of sum them up, it's, it's a right and true understanding of what wisdom is. And so this is what Paul did. He went out and he began to communicate to them. He said, this is how you need to understand the wisdom of God. And this is what a community needs to look like. And, and this is how you uh, work against disunity in a fellowship. And so he's began teaching them all of these things. But I think there's this sense in which uh, that we're too familiar with the understanding of do as I say and not as I do. 
that there's one level of understanding and one level of application of teaching for the laity or for the pe- people that follow it, and there's another level and there's, an, and there's another realm of responsibility for those who lead. And we see this over and over and over again. We see it in politics. We see it in our place of work. We see it sometimes in our homes. Where the dad comes to the family, he's like, family needs to be like this. Everybody needs to be perfect. Everybody needs to keep all their stuff picked up. Everybody needs to do all the things in time the way that dad wants. But what does dad do? Dad is not submitting himself to anybody. He's just ruling, but he's not actually serving anybody. So what Paul does in this is he gives us this fantastic sense of what it is to lead well. He leads not by just giving great information, but he leads by taking this example, applying these things to himself. He submits himself to the same teaching he expects them to walk in light of. How fantastic is that? He says, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos. And we see that the group is really splitting on these two leaders. There are people that say, man, Apollos is my guy. People that say, Paul is my guy. He says that we're under the same restrictions. We're under the same burden. We're under the same teaching as you. And we did this for your benefit. In essence, in submitting himself to the teaching that he communicated to the Corinthians, he is doing this for their benefit. And I would say by extension, he's doing it for our benefit. Think about this. Witness to the risen Christ. Paul had this fantastic experience with Jesus that none of the rest of us get to have, right? So he's walking on this road of blinding light. He hears audibly from Jesus, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not necessarily the message I want to hear, but still he's hearing directly from God. This fantastic life. He's testifying in front of kings. He went from a persecutor and a murderer to a saint in the church. Like everybody knows the name Paul. And here he is, he's the same thing, I'm applying it to me. Why? Because you're worth it, because you're valuable. Because the same gospel hits us all in the same place. And look, he's doing it for two specific reasons. One, because he wants to destroy pride in their hearts. And two, because he wants them to know what the right things to follow are. Look what he goes on to. He says, we're applying these things to ourselves. Why? So that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. He doesn't want them going beyond Scripture. And so likely what Paul means in this is, look, I don't want you going beyond the understanding of those things I've communicated to you in the Old Testament. Now we, if we're approaching this and understanding this, what we need to understand is that we don't go and take Scripture and then begin to apply all this extraneous stuff on top of it and say, I need to uphold Scripture, but I also need to do this. And I also my, my life needs to look like this. I need to add all these other things on top of it. What Paul says primarily is that our lives need to be lived in accordance with what Scripture says. So in applying the Old Testament to them, Paul is effectively giving them bumpers. Imagine, if you will, you go bowling. If you go bowling like me, you want lane bumpers, right? And so some of you are very gifted and good, and every time you roll, it's a strike, or you're picking up the spare. I don't know what either of those things are, and so I need the bumpers there to help me. And so I know when I'm headed towards out of bounds on the left, and I know when I'm headed towards out of bounds on the right, and I don't go beyond that. So what Paul, in fact, is telling them is you guys have excelled at seeking to go beyond those things that I have given you, those things in the ways I have instructed you. They're building their life and identity largely by taking their culture and saying, what is the best way to follow Christ here in Corinth that where it's not offensive to anybody else, where I'm appropriating or taking something that I really like and really love in my culture, and I'm Christianizing it, I'm baptizing it and bringing it, bringing it in. And we do the same things in our culture. We find the things that are laudable, the things that are praiseworthy, the things that everybody looks at and says, this is so good, you should do this. And we say, well, what's a way that I can turn and twist this and make this look a lot like the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, the unfortunate thing therein 
is that we end up so far away because we've so far ended up into this process of adaptation that we're no longer following the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're following the gospel of our own invention. When we appropriately apply wisdom, creates humility in me, unity in us, and it upholds the true gospel. But when we pervert it and head in the opposite direction, we destroy the gospel. And I become so welled up with pride why? Because I've added on to the gospel. I've recognized the gospel in itself is deficient, so I add all this other stuff onto it, and I'm very excited about what I've made it into. And I can't have unity with anybody because I'm so unified in myself and my own worldview. And where did the gospel go? I left it over there because I've gone well beyond what is written. So Paul writes, he says, look, we've applied this to myself. I applied this to Apollos so, you, so that you might learn not to go beyond what is written. And look, the second thing, he says, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Party favoritism. Finding their favorite guy, like Paul is my guy, Apollos is my guy. That was the, that was the thing that they were very good at. They were exceptional at finding lines of distinction and people to follow. Jesus, the gospel wasn't enough for them. They wanted somebody who, in some sense, embodied this representation for them because they could follow that person. They couldn't follow the dictates of Scripture, and they didn't want to submit themselves to the role and the leading of the Holy Spirit in their lives. They wanted something concrete and visible. I want to be a part of this team. I want to be identified by their jersey. Instead of saying we're all unified, we're all bought in and baptized into the same gospel and that of Jesus Christ. So Paul says, look, I submitted myself, and Apollos submitted himself to all these things that you've been taught so that you might learn not to be puffed up in pride against one another. But look at how their pride begins to manifest itself, starting in verse 7. He asks this question. He asks kind of the who, what, and why there in verse 7. Look at the who. He says, for who sees anything different in you? The New American, I think, renders this really appropriately. It says, who regards you as superior? Who regards you as superior? Now, what would the answer with this, uh, to this question, what would it be? Well, it wouldn't be, well, my spouse or my friend. Well, you know Jethro down the road. He regards me as superior. And they would say, look, Jethro's got no teeth. Of course he regards you as superior. But like, he has teeth. He got the implants. He went and saw the guy. So who regards you as superior? And, and what should the response be? Paul's in some sense calling into the hubris of their distinction of superiority. In essence, they, when they ask the question of who then regards you as superior, their response should be, I, I, guess, I, guess, I, I guess I do. I, I guess that would be me. Anybody else regard me as superior? And they see no hands in the room and go up. Why? Because everybody else has this same idea. For instance, if, if you're to step into this church and say, who in here is the best? Everybody stands on a chair and says, what? I guess that would be me. We're unified around the idea of each of us as individuals being best, and we just can't have that. Look back at chapter 1 and verse 26. Paul, Paul said, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to the worldly standards. Not many of you are powerful. Not many of you are noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to confound the wise. In essence, he chose you, Corinthians. So when he asks this question, he says, who among you or who told you that you're superior? They should be saying, well, I, I thought the answer was me and I thought I was, but I'm getting the sense that that's not right. So Paul goes on, he says, what do you have that you did not receive? 
when we begin to add on to the gospel and build our morality and build our stature in community, and we like that, and we like to be seen as that, and we like to be recognized as that, and we like people to praise how they know us and how they see us and how successful we are, how big our house is, how fast our car is, how pretty our spouse is, how well our grass is manicured, or any other, any other thing that we add, how clean our record is, how well-spoken we are. So he says, what things do you have that you did not receive? You can tell they're, they're kind of thinking through this, and it's the, uh, I can't grow a beard. It's not that. Justin and Jesse and Joel, those guys can grow beards. It's not a beard. It's, uh, yeah, I guess, there's, I guess there's not a whole lot that I have that I haven't received. And he says, okay, you're getting there. Nobody, nobody should be communicating to you that you're superior of everybody. Everything that you, that you have is, is, is something you have received. And so he, he piggybacks on that argument. And look what he says. He says, if then you received it. In essence, speaking of salvation, so if you received it, if you received this gifting, if you received this salvation, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? Now, he's not saying, why do you boast as if you don't have it and you do actually have it in your possession? In essence, he's saying, why do you pretend that the gospel is something? Why do you pretend that these spiritual gifts are something that are awarded to you because you're such a hard worker and because you're such a good person? And so he's asking them this question of, do you really have a sense of correctly understanding what the wisdom of God is in such a sense that it's, that it's bred humility in you, or is it instead breeding pride in you? And the same question could be asked of us. When we look at our lives and, and we begin to take stock and we begin to evaluate, kind of where am I at in life? What do we do? Primarily, the place we turn is an evaluation that's, that's comparative to those of our same education, to those of our same age, and to those of our same background. And we want to be able to say, well, I'm doing a, a heck of a lot better than Charles is, or I'm do, not doing quite as well as Jason is, but you know, he's a significant overachiever and nobody likes him anyway. And so we want to find this place where we begin to find our identity. It's not this tall poppy syndrome where we're getting knocked down, but it's this place where everybody generally recognizes I'm a pretty good and solid guy or I'm a pretty good and solid lady. And this is where we find ourselves moving against the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything we've been given in God is a gracious gift that we did not deserve. It's this amazing thing. It's not something to breed terrific sadness in us, where if you're to go to one of your kids and they're playing with something, and you're just this awful person, you're like, what is wrong with you? You're absolutely worthless. You don't deserve this. You don't deserve your mom and I's love. All you do is take from us. You don't deserve any of these toys. All you do is ask of us. That's a complete misunderstanding of the gracious nature of our God. God finds us broken and feeble, naked and weak, and he comes to us in his grace and mercy, and he lifts us up. He finds us broken. He says, you're, you're, you're whole. He finds us ugly and, and hideous. He says, you're beautiful. He finds us marred with sin, and he extends to us forgiveness through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, who himself was whole and perfect and beautiful. And all the beauty and majesty of Jesus becomes ours through his sacrifice. Do you see the distinction there? We're not trying to head back into some right understanding of finding ourselves in a lower pecking order of our self-contentment and understanding. 
We're going to see ourselves through the lens of Jesus. We're going to read Scripture through Jesus. We're going to see one another through Jesus. And we're going to recognize that all we have received is on the basis of his goodness to us. When we rightly understand wisdom, it creates humility in us. And we're able to freely say, I have received this. I have been given this. I've been entrusted and allowed to be a steward of this. He says, why don't you boast as if you did not receive it? We boast as if, as if we did not receive it because we don't want to be uh, belonging to somebody else. We want to be seen in some sense as self-made and self-sufficient. And none of those things can be true of us if we're a believer and follower of Jesus Christ. None of us can be self-sufficient. We're all incredibly dependent upon a risen Messiah. Amen? None of us is self-sufficient. Look at what he does. He begins to kind of go through and, and try and reveal to them the complete and utter ridiculousness, the hubris of their current position and prerogative. So he asks this, or he has this statement there in verse 8. He says, Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich, and without us you have become kings. And so we look at this and say, well, this is a pretty great appraisal of their situation. Paul's saying they've got everything that they could want. They've got all the, all the money, all the riches, all the spiritual goodness they could ever want. And, and lo and behold, he says that they're kings. This doesn't sound like a bad uh, state of affairs to be in at all. Well, per perhaps you've never been introduced to anybody that's sarcastic, but Paul's certainly entering into a little bit of sarcasm here. And so you can imagine the guy in the back, he's like, well, I guess we're not in as bad a state after all. Who wants lunch? Somebody nudges him and says, he's being sarcastic. Oh, that's what that is. Sometimes it's hard to read sarcasm in a text. I can't tell. Are you happy? Are you sad? I don't know. Can you use an emoji, Paul? But look at the statement here. He says, you already have all you want. Now, you might think that the, the statement of uh, sufficiency or having your appetite filled or, or you're satiated, you're no longer hungry, is, is being this thing of, well, that's good. Man, I can remember as a kid, my mom, uh, occasionally on Saturdays, would make this like banquet of a breakfast, and it was, it was biscuits and gravy, and it was grits, and it was bacon, and five other things that would make your heart stop like that, and, and it was just, it was awesome, and she didn't make it just a ton. I, I feel like she made it all the time, but I don't think she actually did. We've had conversations about this. My childhood is a lie, and so, <laughs> and so every time she would make it, you know, I'll start off with two biscuits, because that seems like an appropriate step right there. You slather a little gravy on it, put some Tabasco on top of that, and get some grits beside it, get some bacon over here, and I'm going to get to eggs if I can. And so I'm working the way through, and I get chopped it up, and I eat it, and there's still biscuits left. I only go by increments of two, and so I get two more on there, and the same setup all over again, and now I've got four. And so I'm thinking, oh man, this is, I can't drink anything else, because i still got more biscuits on the table, and so... I compulsively ate if there was food on the table. If you have me over and I don't eat, maybe it says something about your cooking. Maybe it doesn't. And so she puts more biscuits on there uh, on the table, and I, I just begin to eat more. And to the end, when you pick up your fork and your hand's doing this number, <laughs> you feel the sweat break out. I'm like, I'm six. I can do this. And your, your teeth are just like, I'm not letting anything else in. <laughs> and I just ate. And there's nothing to do with contentment. It's all about that feeling of I'm going to vomit if I have to breathe. I had all I ever wanted, and that's what Paul says about them. He says, this is how you see yourself. You're completely sufficient. You don't need anything. You're stuffed to the gills. 
Look at what Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those Corinthians weren't hungry for righteousness. They didn't thirst for righteousness. They thought they had it locked up. There's no sense of urgency in them. There's a sense of arrival. None of us, from the newborn baby to the person who's approaching the century mark, none of us ever arrives spiritually. There is no place spiritually where we make it to, and, and this is just kind of it. We just kind of exist here. Not as long as we're here, not as long as we're drawing breath. There's always the upward call of pursuing Jesus. And he describes it there in the Sermon on the Mount as hungering and thirsting for righteousness. They didn't hunger for it. They didn't thirst for it. They were content with where they were. So he goes on. He says, already you've become rich. They looked at themselves and said, man, I can speak in tongues and and I can heal and and I've got all these other giftings and we're going to get to these things a little bit later in the book. And they said, "And, and that's evidence of God's tremendous blessing in my life. I don't need anything else. And they, in fact, they, they thought that they were ruling and, and living in, in the full delight of God's presence, and they were operating the same way. And Paul looks at them, and he recognizes how incredibly impoverished they are. Because they thought one meal feasting on the word of God was enough to carry them through over the course of their life, and this level that they've attained to a spirituality was as high as they ever needed to go. They had never experienced the depths of God's grace and mercy, because to experience it is to find a well that can never run dry, that we can never reach and plumb the bottom in the depths of. So he wants to awaken them from this stupor. He wants to awaken them from this sense of self-sufficiency, and so he, he interjects this, this harsh line of sarcasm. He says, and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. In their sense of being puffed up and prideful, they've moved so far beyond the people that, that they attributed to be their guy, be it Apollos, be it Paul, be it Cephas or Jesus. They have made themselves into be the emblem worth following, to be the person worth emulating. He said, would that you did reign so that we could rule with you. Look what he does. You get into verse 9, you recognize that Paul moves in some sense beyond their failings, and he shows them this unbelievable pattern of life that he, that he calls him to follow. And it's just unbelievable, unbelievably paradoxical. It's something that if we were to read this, we'd say, what has this person done wrong in life? Where did, where did they misstep, or, or where did they get off, or... Or I wonder why God is so incredibly filled with displeasure towards them. And what group of people are we speaking about? We find that it's Paul speaking of the apostles. He says, For I think God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. Paul's using this gladiator language, saying effectively, imagine that the whole Colosseum is filled with people and you've reached the end of the event, and then you say, let's bring somebody back in for some more gratuitous bloodshed. Let's bring some more people back in so that we can kill and cheer their deaths. Paul says, that's us. That's the apostles. This is what God has especially set us aside for. And, and guess what? They're learning from the apostles. They're emulating the apostles. 
They're supposed to be following the apostles. And Paul says, this is where you want to follow us. This is where it goes. God has set us aside and allowed us to be a spectacle to all the world so that everything of the supernatural angels can see, so that everything in the physical men can see. Everybody beholds us in our manner and existence in life and reckons that we are pathetic and weak. Look what he says. Starting in verse 10, he says, We are fools for Christ's sake. We are fools for Christ's sake. Now, over and again, he has stated that this is in fact the pursuit of all Christians. Back in 118, he says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to we who are being saved, it is the power of God. They bought into the complete and utter foolishness of God that he would send his son. He would send Jesus, God come in flesh, to be perfect and to die at the hand of his creation and to be raised up again on the third day. Paul says, we are foolish. They bought into the folly of God that, that goes on in starting in verse 22. It says, for Jews to men assign in Greek seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God, they are the fools for Christ's sake. And he turns to the Corinthians, he says, but you are wise in Christ. You don't want any more Jesus in your life and, and you feel completely satisfied and self-sustained and, and, and you think this is wisdom. When we misunderstand the wisdom of God, it creates pride in us and it destroys unity in the fellowship and it destroys and perverts the gospel. He says, we're weak. Paul speaks to a community that looks at weakness and says that it's, it's just something you don't talk about. Kind of like when you find your friends balding. You just don't say anything. You wait for them to figure it out. Paul says, we are weak. The Corinthians would look at it and say, it's okay. It's not so bad. Paul turns to them. He says, but you're strong. You're so just noble in this. So the Corinthians begin to think about it, and they begin to say, man, he's weak? We're wise? He says, you're held in honor, but we in disrepute. Paul's already told them that not many of them are noble, that not many of them were strong, that not many of them are wise. Now he's going to turn and describe himself as receiving no honor, no renown, no, not well-liked in community, but to the Corinthians, he says, the things you're pursuing are wrong-headed. You're not pursuing the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're pursuing the gospel in your own making, in your own image and likeness. You're pursuing the gospel that is palatable, tangible, and concrete and attainable. And that's no, in no way, sense, or form the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look how he continues in verse 11. He says, To the present hour we hunger and thirst are poorly dressed and buffeted, homeless, and we labor, working with our hands. Begin to see that Paul is describing Jesus. Paul is describing their own sufferings, but in some sense he's also describing Jesus Isaiah 53.3 says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Jesus experienced these same things. And Paul says, we follow Jesus into the same turmoil. We follow Jesus into the same difficulties. We hunger and we thirst. 
We're poorly dressed. We're Jesus. We were beaten. Jesus had men and women come and seek to follow him. And do you remember what he said? He said, the, the birds of the air have nests and the foxes have holes, but the son, of the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Paul says, we are homeless. That the Corinthians dwelling in security, dwelling in the acceptance and reveling in the acceptance of their community, it was repugnant to them. He says, we labor working with our own hands. Paul wasn't seeking to tell them, look, we're not a burden to you. He does that elsewhere, but that's not what he's trying to do here. To work with your hands was, it was to get dirt under your fingernails. It was to where if you walk down the street, somebody could look at you in the first century and say, that's a guy that works with his hands. Not as if to say, you know, he's a guy that might come over and help us with some things, but to say, that's a person of this level socioeconomically. That's not a person worthy of our time. That's not a person worthy of our efforts. That's not a person we want to have in our home. And what does Paul do? He identifies with them. He says, we work with our hands. Look at how he begins to cast this. He says, when reviled, we blessed. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. Jesus, again speaking uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, said these words starting in Matthew 5 and verse 10. He said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What, what Paul is doing here is saying, man, when we applied the wisdom of God to our lives, it meant that we were brought low so that he might be exalted. So that all the gifts and all the treasures and all the recognition and all the accolades that we might receive here on this earth, we considered as empty and void and null. So that we might receive the crown of Jesus. Paul, writing on the same idea, described this back in uh, Philippians chapter 3 in verse 8. He says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake... I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Paul looks at everything, all the accolades. He looks at his family heritage. He looks at his name and he says, all these things are worthless. They are excrement. That's how he describes them there. They are scubala. In order to gain Christ, he lets them all go. So he gets here. At the end of 6 through 13, he says, We have become and are still like a scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Paul's the one they're supposed to emulate as he follows Jesus. Imagine if we rolled that trash can back there up to the front of the room after a particularly busy lunch day, mid-cold season, I'm snot rags and all kinds of nastiness. Some kid got sick in the trash can. It's unfortunate. He has bad aim. We're going to take a pocket knife, and we, and we take it, and we scrape from the inside, and we're going to look at the stuff that's on there, and we're going to set that to the side. And then we take that same knife, and we're going to scrape it from the outside, and we set that on a plate. And say, so when the world looks at us, when it apprises us, when it evaluates us, this is what it sees. It says we are worthless. It says we have no value. And that's enough for us. We're okay with that. 
Because we find our security, we find our identity, we find who we are, not in how the world sees us, but in how we're received and accepted by Jesus. The world wants you to take the gospel, to take the moral teaching contained in it, but then add on top of it the American dream, to create contentment, some number, some image of yourself at some point in the future. And when you reach there, you'll finally be content. It makes it elusive, and it keeps moving the number and the image further and further away. But when that becomes our gospel, when the gospel is about being a good person or being an upstanding member of society or having things, when that becomes our gospel, it engenders pride in us. It destroys the unity of the fellowship. And it is so far moved away from the true gospel, gospel of Jesus Christ that it is no longer saving, even though it still may be transforming your life. To believe and to follow the true gospel of Jesus Christ is to apply the wisdom of a crucified Savior, a resurrected Messiah, to submit yourself to him, to put to death pride and foster unity. And a lot of what that's going to look like is suffering. A lot of what that's going to look like is misery. Are you willing to be considered scum of the earth, the refuse of all things. Are you ready to follow the true gospel? Are you ready to take on the true wisdom? Jesus is worth it. His gospel is worth it. But it costs you not a little, not a lot. It costs you everything. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you that you give us a gospel in your son Jesus that we could not create on our own, we could not sustain on our own, we could not be faithful to on our own. And so God, we pray for the work of your spirit and calling us to submit our lives and strengthening us to do that. And I thank you that you put the gospel far outside of my reach, that it's not something that I've mastered. I've not yet received all of it. I'm still appropriating it. I'm still submitting myself to you. God, would you help me to walk in light of that? Would you help us as a body to walk in light of that? You help us to come alongside our brothers and sisters who are struggling and failing and falling and to lift them up with the same grace and mercy extended to us in the person of Jesus. No guilt, no judgment, extending to them the same love that we received in the person of Jesus Christ. And Father, we want to pray for the man or woman in this place, in this hearing, who has not yet submitted themselves to Jesus, crying out to him for salvation. That in Jesus they would see the forgiveness of their sins that in Jesus they would see their, their repentance met with forgiveness. In Jesus they would find acceptance, a home, and love forever. We submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen.